0: You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free, Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 333 of Troubadours and rock on tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. Can you hear the August lawnmower from my neighbor's yard? I hope you can. It's sort of enchanting. On this week's program, we have a wonderful conversation with extraordinary film producer and director, Robert May. We talk about Robert's early days watching film as a kid, some of his favorite movies then, and uh, how he got into filmmaking after a few other types of jobs, a little bit different than producer and director, but not so much either, I think you'll find. We talk about working with Peter Dinklage and uh, The Station Agent and Kids for Cash, two really highly acclaimed, wonderful films, as well as his newest documentary that's not out yet, about Five Guys and a Dog. That might well be the title, not sure yet. And also about helping people through film, through art, form new opinions. A grand conversation this week with Robert May. We also have an EWSA titled Grapevine. Five poems by John Updike, as read by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavese. And another poem by yours truly called Yet Again. All of this, as is always the case, is infused with the energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 333 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I
1: believe we're going to go up the country a little bit right now. (laughs)
0: I remember a time back in the 1970s when I would look out my second-floor bedroom window at my father's well-assigned vegetable garden. Tomato plants in straight rows, bell peppers, peas, basilico, parsley, green beans climbing up poles, hand-carved from neighborhood-found branches— corn stalks, standing straight and flourishing, guided only by the sun. We had a grapevine, too, running up and over a trellis high enough and wide enough and long enough for us to have summer evening get-togethers underneath. In late September, as you walk from the garage facing our little stretch of an alley named Steckle Street after a prominent Jewish family in our mostly Catholic borough. As you walk toward the cellar door entrance of our house from that garage, my father and a few other men from our neighborhood designed and built, you could smell the perfume of the grapes ripened on the vine overhead and alongside. Pick a handful of purple and white to taste in the early autumn sunshine. Those aspects of our world do still exist here and there, where you are. Let us not overlook it all, so beautiful, so real, so much a part of who we might be.
2: the martyr, playing the wrong cards, why did you come to this planet, why did you come to this life, how can you be everybody's dream, and still be somebody's wife, tell me, what did you have for lunch today, that's right how would I know, What I know You're off somewhere Being free While I start In the lonesome Cold Our bodies got used to each other Now they're used to the sound Of Richie Haven's voice on the vinyl Spinning round and round Sometimes I feel like I was born way too late Should've been born on the Woodstock stage But I'm just here waiting And waiting And waiting Somebody famous had a birthday today all I saw was another full moon. What's that? Something's burning on the stove. Must be the pasta. Must be the.
0: Good morning, Robert May. This is uh, E.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Thanks for being on the program. How are you? Good. How about yourself? Very good. All right. Uh, Well, let's get right into it. Before we get started, let me give the folks a little bit of background information. Robert May is an American film producer and director. He was producer of The War Tapes and The Station Agent, one of my favorites, I might add, and executive producer of Stevie and The Fog of War. And the director and a producer of *Kids for Cash*, *The Fog of War* won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. Mr. May is also founder of Senart Films. Trumadores and Rock on Tours is very happy to have Robert May in the program. Thank you again, sir, for being on. And uh, would you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today as a producer, as a director, as someone running Senart Films?
3: Well, it's kind of an odd, um, indirect route, really, because when I was a kid, I uh, literally wanted to make movies. I didn't necessarily want to direct them or act in them, but I wanted to produce them. I was just fascinated by all of the intricacies of it, you know. And when, when, when I was the kind of kid that would take a vacuum cleaner apart and figure out how it works, and mm-hmm. anything else that was like sort of mechanical or electrical, I was just always interested in that sort of thing and figure out how things work, and I liked music, and um, and I was an avid movie watcher at the time. And, uh, and so, in fact, one of my uh, favorite movies as a kid, which my parents took me to, and which I was really far too young to really watch this movie, but it was in cold blood. And I remember like just being stunned by that movie. It probably had nightmares as well back then because I was so young. And then I saw another movie called Doctor Zhivago, also when I was young, and I was just taken aback by how those kinds of stories could just pluck you out of whatever world you're living in, and put you in a different world entirely. But it was an impractical, really an impractical decision to go into film at that time uh, because it was it was complex. It's just like it is today, but different in that very few people were actually. Creating anything independent, uh, you you had to be part of the studio system, really back then to really you know break into the to the real creative process of making a movie anyway. And and I was a kid that lived in the country and uh, really didn't know how to do that. Plus, I had a father who was concerned about that. You know, yeah. how are you going to make money? How are you going to make a living?
0: Well, when and you say back, so, when you say back then, what what uh, decade are we talking about? And when you reference, well, this
3: is a, the this is the uh, early eighties.
0: Early eighties, uh, and you were raised you in know, uh, late
3: seventies, early eighties. Yeah,
0: where were you raised?
3: I was raised near Lake Wallen-Pawpack in right. Pennsylvania. Excellent. And uh, and so, you know, I was an EMT. I uh, for a number of years, which was a great, you know experience for me all the way around because I was a practicing EMT and, and sort of got to be with people, which I think in part is what brought my interest in characters, you know, to light. Um, but then I, I started a very practical business. Um, you know, I thought I wanted to be an engineer, however, however, but I did get into, um, the electronic, eventually, I got into the electronic side of a business because I started a security company um, really installing alarm systems, uh, both commercial and residential, closer to television systems, that sort of thing. Um, but then, and it grew. It was uh, within the top 1% nationwide, and but I was I never lost my desire or passion to make films. So in 1998, I began a plan to really transitioned myself into what I really wanted to do. And then by 2000 um, is when I started Sun Art Films.
0: Wow. So you, 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 have, you had a pretty good plan, it seems. Made some money and then got to uh, try out your dream.
3: Right. And I found it was really the same kinds of uh, sets of, of skills uh, but in a different business, because in the security business, we were managing the minutiae of making sure that nothing went wrong 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, in guarding life safety asset protection. And so everything had to be very meticulously done. And we were, uh, we lived and died by the view of the customer. So. Really, getting into the film business, I found quickly that it wasn't a whole lot different in that it's managing minutiae, every little detail. Um, the patience required, and I'm not a patient individual, but the patience required to get things just right or as right as subjectively you can you can get it, in your own opinion, and that was the security business, too. Um, it was more predictable, I would say, than the than the film business, but... You know, the producing is very similar. It, it It is literally trying to find the best talent um, to help encourage people to um, be a team player, to collaborate, to give the very best that they can to what you're up to. And that's the kind of thing that we used to do for the security company, too. So it was... It, it felt very natural for me, quite frankly, and didn't feel a whole lot different. What was different is the way the business is conducted. That was very different. But... It well, was. You're dealing with artists, itself, wasn't
0: it? <laughs> pardon me. You're dealing with artists first of all, which you know sometimes is like herding cats. I'd imagine, uh, right. and and you have the money and the time uh, factors involved. So that that was, I would guess that was probably a challenge.
3: Well, it was. Um, but you know what's interesting is it, if I, if I look back at my career in the security business, I. I had always gravitated toward the more difficult people to work with and they were always more creative whether it be our marketing director or the operations manager we they were all super creative and 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 could be difficult to work with and what I mean by that is they were very particular about the visions they had and and so they didn't they did just didn't just settle and that was a great experience for me because that's typically what you find uh certainly in the higher end of the of the film business anyway, when you're trying to work with people that are accomplished or would be accomplished or on their way to accomplishment, and you find a lot of the same kind of skill sets that actually I had been used to working with. I mean, I had no idea it would be like that, but I often think of people by name that I worked with that I always say that people around me in the in the film industry had never met these people, but they know them by name because I always said, like, this person prepared me to work without, with this person in the film business and so forth. And, uh, and, and it, it, and also, you know, it just, it just, um, it, well, it was just overall just good preparation, I would say, In a in an odd way, I would never have expected it.
0: So, yeah, you're obviously an, and hands-on producer. I mean, sometimes producers, they, they just throw money at a project, uh, but you're not that sort of producer at all.
3: Well, no, I was never interested in that. In fact, that's the one thing that I fought hard in the beginning when, uh-huh. um, you know, I got in into the industry when the dot-com uh, boom hit. And so during that period of time, there were a lot of people that had made a lot of money and then decided they wanted to be in the film business. And the problem with that was that they weren't really interested in the, the intricacies of making movies or maybe they didn't know enough about it, but they thought it was cool and sexy and so forth. And... Well, the one thing I had learned because I had a mentor when I first got started is the one thing about a movie set it's extremely boring for anybody that's just not completely into it because you just sit around and you wait a long time for one thing or another to happen. Um, And so a lot of people who first got in, they were getting in all for the wrong reasons. And so during that time for me, it was hard to find representation that would take me seriously because it is clearly not what I wanted. I was not coming in just to sort of buy my way into the business at all. I mean, I really had uh, creative input and ideas, and it took, took some time to, you know, in essence, to prove that out. And one of the first people was the, re- the, the team who represents me now, the same people I started way back when, who at first didn't want to represent me, but then when they realized I was very serious, did. Um, but then the first filmmaker that I got intricately involved with was, was, was Steve James. And I suppose Steve looked at me the way anyone would coming in from outside the industry but um he 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 quickly uh viewed me different and that's why we went on to make other to work on other projects together like the war tapes.
0: Well, let's get into some of the projects. You know, I I guess um uh it, it, you, we can go chronological if we want or we can go uh to wh- wherever you want to start uh you, we, you mentioned the war tapes i i i the station agent i think is brilliant I, I, I my my hats off to you for for making that film i've seen it about four times i love it more every time um and of course uh, both of us are from the same neck of the woods generally northeastern pennsylvania kids for cash so important uh, for us and uh, nationwide to reveal the heinous set of you know, affairs that exist in this country. Um, where do you want to start? talking about some of the projects what, what motivated you, maybe some of the folks you dealt with?
3: Well I would say that in starting the company, um, even in coming up with the name, I mean I just I wanted to get involved with projects that, that would be that have some sort of an effect on people, on their emotions and, and their and all their senses and so sensory art comes from that, sensory art, sin art. And um and I was interested in character driven stories. Partly because I think the way maybe I was brought up and you know, as I mentioned earlier, maybe even as an EMT, you know, when you'd see people and you'd be involved with families that you never knew and who their life and death situations So character-driven stories are what I wanted to be involved in, and I also wanted to be involved in um, discovering new talents, whether it be writer, director, actors, because I had found that one of my skill sets in the security business was literally to be able to identify someone who I thought had a considerable amount of talent but hadn't had the opportunity to actually prove it or show it. And I knew that in the film business, besides my own ability to – or goal, objective to prove that I had some talent, Um, I knew there were plenty of other people in that same boat. So um, our representatives connected me to Steve James because he was looking for someone who could help sort of guide the project of Stevie. So I uh, was very interested in that and um, got very involved. No one really wanted to um, get involved with his project, Stevie, because it was, was really being done over a multi-year period it was a really tough subject matter who would want to see it that sort of thing and similarly with the station agent uh the station agent was turned down by everybody else and i had a uh, a friend that uh thought hey this may be something for you so i read it and i loved the script right away and because i thought this was a story i hadn't seen before and i thought it 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 really presented prejudice in a way we'd never seen it presented loss in a way we hadn't seen. I didn't think it was saccharine, and loved it. Um, and then it was very risky for lots of reasons, but um, you know then I knew enough about budgeting that I set out a, an established um, budget that I thought it would be appropriate for, and, and they didn't want to make it. They went elsewhere. And they, um, by the time it came back to me again. Um, it had evolved uh, that the the notes were, you know, make the little guy a tall guy and all these kind of crazy s- stories uh, and notes that Tom McCarthy, um, who was the writer-director of the station agent, he didn't want to do that. And, of course, if he had brought it back to me that way, I would never have made it anyway because I liked the original concept. Um, and yeah, it evolved then, and
0: finally was, we agreed
3: to work together.
0: I was just going to mention, for those who haven't seen it yet, you mentioned the little guy. I mean, literally, you're talking physical stature. the the lead act, the, the lead character. I would say one of the lead characters, Finbar McBride, pay, played by renowned actor Peter Dinklage. Um, he, they wanted to make him someone who was more of you know normal physical stature. I guess you're saying, and then that would have thrown the, yeah. that would have thrown the whole story off. Then you also have like Bobby Cannavale, a brilliant actor, playing right. jo- Joe uh, yeah. Oramas, and. Uh, I should say brilliant actress yeah, Patricia Clarkson playing Olivia Harris Uh, what a cast
3: yeah it was and you know to me um, the project had been workshopped and really perfected um, and you know we helped to get it the way it was and and really it was a great collaborative effort and and then uh, you know once but what was interesting is it came to me in the first place because no one really wanted to make it and then I would have made it, but uh, under certain conditions, circumstances, and budget, and so forth. Plus, we had considerable story notes. Um, But at the time, which is often what happens, there were too many people involved in the very beginning on the other side, and so it went elsewhere, and I was sad about that. Um, But then it came back, because the notes they were getting were these kind of absurd notes, which had uh, nothing to do with the original story. It was all about changing the story. And that's when um, Tom came back to me and, and, and I was gung-ho to try to make the movie that he really wanted to make. and of course, the first thing was, does he have the ability to do it? because he had never um, he'd never directed anything before. He was an actor, and this was his first script and his first um, his first project that he would be directing. but it was right in line with the mission of our company because that's what we wanted to do is uncover new talent and new projects. And so, um, but it's funny because I had a mentor during that period of time that we joke about it now, but he begged me not to do the project. He said, don't do it. Don't do this project because it's, you know, nobody's going to want to see it. And, you know, I just went with my gut. That's all I can tell you. So it was a great experience all the way around. It really did launch the career of Peter Dinklage, um, although he had been in a movie before that called *Living in Oblivion*, but uh, after *The Station Agent* um, was a success, then he was eventually um, brought on to many projects. Oh, and, the the uh, big one, yeah, the, the biggest of all, which finally just um, just concluded.
0: Yeah, HBO's um, uh, was escaping me right now. <laughs> What's the name of that show? I can't remember.
3: Well, if you hadn't said that to me, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> I probably would have been able to just...
0: There it is. Game of Thrones. Got. That has made him iconic almost at this point. Um,
3: well, it, it, it has. And, you know, the interesting thing about him personally, cause he's got a, you know, he's a wife and kids, and he's very reclusive. His, his, more personally, he's like he wasn't the station agent. He's reclusive. Uh, but a great guy and, and a great family. I knew his mother and father and brother, and, uh, I mean, just a wonderful human being. And so it's so great to see someone like that um, move on with their career and feel like he had something to do with it, or at least a little part of it to do with it. So I think, you know, it's been a very rewarding um, uh, on many levels jumping into this business, and that was one of them for sure.
0: Peter Dinklage we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, um, that actor, and we're talking with... Robert may producer, director and um the man behind sensory Sen Art films uh, now you know we you talk about um making movies that basically are advocacy cinema too and and uh, movies that deal with the human condition um, when when we go we hop up to maybe kids for cash was that your directoral debut yep. And uh, that movie is about a few judges or a couple of judges in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, who were basically getting kick pa- kickbacks from the private, private uh, prison industry so, uh, to, to put kids in prison so that they you know, can make some money. It was, it's a heinous story. Uh, tell us how, when you first heard about it, you felt compelled to document that story. You are listening to Troubadours and rock tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free, Brooklyn.
3: When, we, uh, when I first heard about the, when it hit the papers, I think it was in uh, January um, of 2009, um, I, my producing partner and I were working on a whole different project, actually a supernatural thriller, and it was, it involved, um, it was a present-day story, but it involved, um, power and, and children and the abuse of children, um, in, in labor, uh, and, and how kids were, you know, subject to labor and, you know, and many years ago, but it was a supernatural thriller about what happened today as a result of it. And we were developing that, uh, when the scandal hit and I saw it because even though my office was in New York and all it was sort of in my backyard in that it happened in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, uh, were at home. So I took notice of it and I didn't know these judges. I knew of them though. I probably voted for them when I was there. Um however, um it what struck me about that story was that it was a one-sided story and according to the media. I mean it was just that these judges were evil and they literally traded money for cat uh, for traded kids for cash literally by placing these kids in to centers in, in return for money. Um, so I thought it was an interesting story and I, um, one of the things that the criteria that we created right up front is that we have to tell from both sides if we can't get the judges on camera then we're not going to make the movie because if we're just filming the kids and families, that would be the obvious story. and it would be one-sided and the news was, you know the news in general, was already reporting that. So uh, I really didn't think it was possible, but we were able to secure both judges independently to uh, to be interviewed on camera uh, very secretly, over three and a half years. And then we also filmed kids and families and juxtaposed the two stories. But when I had the original idea for the film, I went to um, both Errol Morris and uh, Steve James, who I had worked with before, um, both of whom encouraged me to to direct it myself because they had worked with me, and in particular, Steve James. When I got involved with Stevie, Stevie is the deepest of deep human condition stories and very difficult. But it affected me forever because well, can I. Can you give me how,
0: a little background on that on Stevie? So
3: yeah, okay, Stevie is a film about an advocacy, big brother, little brother relationship uh, where Steve James was the big brother to Stevie Fielding, who was a troubled kid, moved from foster home to foster home, um, and everybody turned their back on him, including schools, the community, his own family, um, and he had issues in foster care as well. And over the course of time that Steve James uh, was just wanted to document this relationship, Stevie got into trouble. And he went into a downward spiral um, as a kid. And there was no one, but Steve James was there, but short of him, there was no one there helping this kid. And it was so affecting to me, which is why I wanted to be involved in that film, because it just shows families in distress that we typically don't see. You know, we may hear about them or read about them, but we never really get inside their families or get inside the pain and suffering they may be going through. And no matter how much, many problems most families have um few families experience the kind and kids experience the kind of pain that um stevie and his family did and so i just thought it was a great opportunity to to dive deep into these characters and, and um and that was stevie and then so for kids for cash it was really a similar story in that we were going to be going behind the scenes um, both with the kids and families, kids who found themselves in trouble, where society looks at them and saying that, well, if you're a juvenile delinquent, you must have done something extremely wrong. But then when we learned that 98% of all kids that are arrested are for nonviolent offenses, like stupid kid things, then it was like, wait a second. It put a bigger spotlight on the entirety of kids being locked up and sent away and and so there for kids for cash was no longer about just these two judges who were accused of taking millions of dollars in exchange for sending kids to private uh for-profit prisons it was really more about the juvenile justice system as a, as a whole um because we didn't realize that in the beginning because in the beginning it was just this uh, anomaly really um and so I think, though, that without me being involved in Stevie, I never would have taken on that project, right. Kids for Cash. And then Steve James became a collaborator on uh, Stevie. He was, uh, would watch cuts and collaborate with me and uh, was very helpful along with many other people, which is how films get made anymore, especially documentaries.
0: He, so he helped you out with Kids for Cash?
3: Yeah, yeah, he would watch cuts. And, um, and, and we had already worked together on the war tapes because the war tapes came to me um and we needed um we needed another producer and i talked him into doing it basically he didn't want to do it but then he did do it and of course he doesn't regret it cuz War chase was was also a critically acclaimed movie as well and so um we had worked very well together on that and then on uh, Kids for Cash i mean he didn't he didn't produce Kids for Cash or or he wasn't involved every day in the creative aspects but when you're making any kind of film but it's particularly documentary collaboration is critical because you know you don't know you set out to tell one story and very often you're telling another story by the end because the story is evolving unless it's some historical piece that history's already set and you're just bringing out the details of how we arrived to where we know but in an active story of documentary like kids for cash it was evolving we didn't know where it was going to go because we were with the judges during their federal prosecution at the same time getting the reaction from the kids and how are the kids and families dealing with not only with the fact that they thought they were sent away for no reason in the first place, then to find out that it might've had something to do with money and not them and then go through the entire process of a trial with these judges. So, you know, it was a very complex project, um, all in all. And we had thousands of hours of footage over a four year period that, we had on the project
0: and that's available on netflix now if anybody wants to watch it right
3: yeah netflix itunes um amazon yeah
0: and you mentioned the war tapes and you also have the fog of war uh which um won the academy Award for best documentary um there's a are those related at all would you say
3: no not at all i mean they just they've worn the name right. but that's it uh errol Morris directed the um the fog of war and uh, that was a great experience for me. And, and you know, the whole story behind um, Robert McNamara and the fact that he uh, had written so many books, uh, he had agreed to do the movie, but then in the end didn't want to do the movie because he had said everything he had to say, but then uh, went on to agree to, to actually um, be interviewed by Earl Morris. And, you know, I found it to be a very fascinating chapter in history because he really did reveal things we didn't know um through all, all the books, particularly the Gulf of Tonkin, which he talked about, how it you know, escalated the Vietnam War and and so forth. And the funny thing about Robert, Robert McNamara when he, he wasn't a movie guy at all, but he told Errol that I think this will win an Academy Award. Of course, we were all like dumbfounded because he's not a movie watcher and that's like a curse to even <laughs> say such a thing. <laughs> but he was he was the smartest guy in the room, as as they said back then. So perhaps he knew more than we did.
0: Yeah, I think, he, and also uh, some of the stuff you're alluding to, he knew that the Vietnam War was was hopeless. But he had a, he put on a different face yep. because he felt that's right a, a duty. Uh, yeah, um, we're talking to Robert May here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, and we only have several minutes left, believe it or not, sir. It's such a nice experience to to uh, talk about your work with you. Um, And before we we close up or close off our conversation for this time, uh, if people want to find out what you're doing, uh, what's next, where would they go?
3: That's a good question, because one of the things that I've noticed that in this industry is that uh, producers' web pages are never updated, uh, and, and so you never really know what's going on. Even if you're looking for an agency or a production company, the best you can do is Find the name of the company and land on their landing page, and not much else is shown. So, it's often the way ours is too. But uh, you know, most people go to imdb. Uh, dot com and look up what somebody's doing today. So that would be the way that people can see what we're doing. It's just I'm on IMDb and credited producer and director there. So, and Senard Films is too. So it's probably we have a certainly have a website, but it's it, it's not going to reflect necessarily. Uh, projects that we're working on
0: right now. Well, well, uh, what what are you working on right now?
3: Finishing up a documentary uh, which is about five guys and a dog that venture into Superstition Mountain, Arizona in search of the lost Dutchman's gold. And it's led by a retired rocket scientist who claims that he has found the final puzzle pieces and know where the gold is. And he needs to prove that he's found it to the government so that he can, um, in essence, claim it, um, perhaps not for himself, but just claim the find. So it's, in essence, a 15-day uh, excursion off the, off the grid, completely off the grid, um, which we shot. In fact, we shot it, literally we had to hike in, we had horse packs bring gear in, uh, and it was incredibly challenging. I'm not a camper. It was an incredibly challenging project because, you know, we literally had satellite phones. There was no cell phone service, no power. We had to bring in solar power generators and so forth. And we were in there for 15 days. And then another 15 days or so in shooting outside the mountain. So uh, we're finishing that up now.
0: And it'll be released in a year or so, would you say?
3: Yeah, I would say so. And then we're working on a narrative uh project too that I can't really talk too much about, but uh about a fictional a fiction film as well and uh a television project I can't really go into that either but but we're plenty busy with three things going on at the same time right now
0: and they'll all be coming through set art films yeah excellent and well uh,
3: in in partnership of you know so, like nobody makes a movie by themselves or a television show or 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 any, any, of, any of these types of creative. The, the thing about it, I always tell people, because uh, there's a, a local university here in northeastern Pennsylvania, a Wilkes University, and they have, it's the Maslow Center for Creative Writing. It's a graduate, graduate writing program, and I've been an advisor to them for 12, 13 years. And the thing that I say to the students they come into the program, because we see them twice a year, is that you've just entered the most collaborative art form there is. If you don't want to collaborate with people, become a painter, <laughs> and you then because all you need is your paint and your and your a canvas, and you paint. But if you're going to make a movie or a television show, uh, you're going to do it with the help of perhaps hundreds of people, if not more. Uh, and you really have to learn how to partner and collaborate. And frankly, it's one of the things I like the most about the business is that level of collaboration. Yeah. They're well, used to it in my o- other career and and you know, I think in this particular career it certainly is what is required to try to, you know, compete in the in the world of entertainment.
0: And it, and it must be so exhilarating to work with as you mentioned earlier some of the most creative people uh, around and, and to create something together. That's got to be exhilarating. And that, when it when, is. You, when you're doing the last question then we we're going to have to say until next time. Uh, again, thank you so much for talking with us. But uh, all this work that you're doing, um, what, what do you hope to uh, or what, you, what are you trying to accomplish? It's not about the money, I'm sure. It, it's it's, uh, it's what? what? What are you trying to accomplish on, a, I guess, a personal level and also uh, with regards to society? You know, the, the part of the you're a citizen of this country. Maybe there's something there, given that you're, you're so interested in advocacy films, too.
3: Well, I mean, I'm not doing it as a hobby. I mean this is a literal second career with you know money exchanges hands, we do work, you know we get paid um the uh and and the compensation varies from project to project and and how successful they are or not. but I would say this that um i'm I have no regrets, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, our our projects have garnered a level of attention they have. Um and Kids for Cash, in particular, because it was the first project I directed, and it was it was critically acclaimed. It was a New York Times uh, critic's pick, and it wasn't just it wasn't just critically mentioned by newspapers like New York Times and l a Times and Washington Post and so forth, but also by the Trades variety and Hollywood Reporter. And for me, um, and and they each talked about different aspects of that film, some, like the Hollywood Reporter said, it rivals most thrillers, which was cool from an entertainment standpoint. And the New York Times and our Washington Post went into, beside that, went into the advocacy part of it, the social element of it, the, 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 the diving into a world between villain and victim, and the, uh, and, and the fact that we didn't tell you how to feel about either the kids, the families, or the judges. And for me, I think that's the way people can form new opinions we could have bent that film one way or the other. It could have been, and we would have been preaching to the choir, people that are already in a position. And I know that film really is very disturbing for people. Uh, Half the audience has one opinion, and half the audience has a very different opinion. And so I'm really proud of that. And I think it spurred a lot of conversation all the way around. Um, In fact, in Washington, and it, and it, it literally promoted a number of legislative changes and laws just because the film screened on Capitol Hill three separate times for Congress. And, and, uh, and, and so that's I never expected any of that. Uh, and so it, it's, done, it's done good. And, um, but it, it's not that we set out to create a film that would do good. It would just told the story as it was. Or the fog of war, which I took at the request of the State Department, I took to Oman in the Middle East um, many years ago, and and presented that film in front of um, a Middle East audience, and it was remarkable. The that was when we were in the Iraq War at that time, and people would say, "Well, you know, haven't we learned anything? I mean, you know, this movie should have suggested that." Well. Apparently not, and history does repeat itself. So I think the one thing about these films is it's a reminder of what happens when we lose sight of society and, and the struggle of families and children everywhere, all, all walks of life, all incomes.
0: Nicely said. Robert May, thank you so much. I wish you the best with the rest of uh, the projects that you're working on at, at present. I look forward to seeing them.
3: All right. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
4: Bounce-a-bomb, bounce pound, pound, bounce
5: Six Updikes Deities and Beasts Tall Atlas, Jupiter, Hercules, Thor, just like the antic pagan gods of yore, make up a too erratic pantheon for mortal men to be dependent on. I much prefer myself, the humble rat, the tiny terrier, the short hawk that makes secret flight, and the sparrow whose fall is never mentioned in the press at all. Sonic Boom I'm sitting in the living room when up above the thump of doom resounds. Relax. It's Sonic Boom. The ceiling shudders at the clap, the mirrors tilt, the rafters snap, and baby wakens from his nap. Hush, babe, some pilot we equip, giving the speed of sound the slip, has cracked the air like a penny whip. Our world is far from frightening I no longer strain to read the sky, where moving fingers, jet planes, fly. Our world seems much too tame to die. And if it does, with one more pop, I shan't look up to see it drop. Thoughts While Driving Home. Was I clever enough? Was I charming? Did I make at least one good pun? Was I disconcerting? Disarming? Was I wise? Was I wan? Was I fun? Did I answer that girl with white shoulders correctly, or should I have said, engagingly, Kierkegaard smolders, but Elliot's ashes are dead? And did I, while being a smarty, yet some wry reserve slyly keep? So they murmured, When I'd left the party, he's deep, he's deep, he's deep. Marriage Council Why Marry Ogre Just To Get Hubby? Headline in the Boston Herald Why Marry Ogre Just To Get Hubby? Has he a brogue, or are his legs stubby? Smokes he a stogie? Is he not sober? Is he too logy and dull as a crowbar? Tom, Dick, and Harry, garrulous, greedy, and grouchy, They vary from savage to seedy, And, once wed, will parry to set asunder. O harpy, why marry ogre, I wonder? Recital Roger Bobo gives recital on tuba. Headline in the Times Eskimos in Manitoba Barracuda off Aruba Cock ear when Roger Bobo Starts to solo on the tuba Men of every nation Puba, Nabob, Bozo, toff, and Hobo Cry in unison, indubitably There is simply nobody Who umpas on the tubo Solo quite like Roger Bobo
0: again. Wallet and eyeglasses, two AA batteries, a glass case, a vase housing synthetic flowers on a weathered wooden coffee table, wearing fishnet stockings and two lace doilies. The television's remote control positioned ready For me to grab hold, might I want to preoccupy myself yet again?
1: So don't let them steal your life eh, 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 eh. Don't let them break your stride eh, 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 eh. There's light on the other side And you'll see all the rain clouds falling through It's a revolution And they make it out alive It's a revolution
0: It, episode 333 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. With yours truly, EW Conundrum Demure, I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Robert May. I also would like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavese, John Updike, as well as these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Canned Heat, Prince, The Meters, April March, Diplo Faustic, Imanis and Kai, and, of course, Brantford Salas, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one.